Say what you mean, mean what you say, and don't be mean when you say it. Welcome to episode 179 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Michelle, Megan, Tony, Roberta, Carolyn, Leslie, Lonnie, and Hannah. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Michelle, Megan, Tony, Roberta, Carolyn, Leslie, Lonnie, and Hannah for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. I'm going to start with a reading. This is from our daily reader, Courage to Change. It's from July 25th. After years of letting people take advantage of me, I had built up quite a store of anger, resentment, and guilt by the time I found Al-Anon. So many times I wanted to bite off my tongue after saying yes when I really wanted to say no. Why did I continue to deny my own feelings just to gain someone's approval? As I worked the Al-Anon program, the answer became apparent. What I lacked was courage. In the serenity prayer, I learned that courage is granted by my higher power, so that is where I turned first. Then it was up to me to do my part. Was I willing to learn to say no when I meant no? Was I willing to accept that not everyone would be thrilled with this change? Was I willing to face the real me behind the people-pleasing image? Fed up with volunteering to be treated like a doormat, I squared my shoulders and answered yes. Today's reminder, it is not always appropriate to reveal my every thought, especially when dealing with an active alcoholic. But do I make a conscious choice about what I say? And when it is appropriate, do I say what I mean and mean what I say? If not, why not? All I have to offer anyone is my own experience of the truth. So I was inspired to this topic by some discussion at a meeting recently. The meeting was actually on step three, but somehow we got onto this idea of of saying what you mean and meaning what you say. And I recalled this, I don't think it's exactly a slogan, but it's certainly something I hear around the rooms about a quick mnemonic about communication, which is to say what you mean and mean what you say. And don't be mean when you say it. The communication chapter in the book really echoes all three parts of that saying. So in that chapter, it says, Many of us have formed patterns of communication that linger even though they may have outlived their usefulness. And this is always helpful for me to remember when I'm looking at parts of myself that I perhaps am not wild about, things that I would like to change, that almost all of those had value at some point in my life. Uh, I learned them to deal with some particular situation, but perhaps they're not useful to me now, or they're not useful in every situation. Things we learn as a child, when we learn them, we may not understand the boundaries within which those things are useful. And so that's something that that comes to us as adults, and for some it comes maybe more easily than others. For those of us who found ourselves affected by this disease of alcoholism, which definitely clouded and confused my mind, finding those boundaries may be even more difficult until we have some help, whether that help is from listening in the rooms of Al-Anon, from reading literature, from 
praying to our higher power. So I pulled out from that chapter and from my own experience some some questions about patterns of communication that might linger even though they may have outlived their usefulness. The first one, I asked myself, how did I keep quiet or agree to unreasonable requests in order to avoid conflict? And do I continue to do that out of habit or maybe fear? And, you know, I know that that is definitely something I have done in the past. I uh, am typically quite conflict avoidant. And so if somebody asks me to do something that I feel is unreasonable or I don't want to do, I would say yes, just to avoid that conflict. And an example, a few years ago, my wife asked me to, if I could help out a friend of hers who was needed a ride to a detox center, not nearby, what I felt inside was I didn't want to do this. It wasn't my friend. And this friend had had a habit, a pattern of going to detox and coming out and relapsing and going to detox and coming out and relapsing. And, and I didn't feel that if I tried to intervene this one time that it was actually going to have the effect that my wife wanted it to have. So I didn't want to do it. I didn't think it was a reasonable thing to do, but I said yes to avoid conflict with her. Then I felt like, why did I do that? Why did I say yes? And I know it was because I didn't want to say no. I didn't want to upset her. I didn't want to disappoint her. I don't know exactly. And I called my sponsor and I said, look, this thing happened. And I'm wondering if you have any wisdom about how I could have handled it differently. And we talked for a while and I got a couple of things couple of useful tools and uh, tips, whatever, from that conversation. One was that when I wasn't sure that I wanted to say yes, in fact, I was pretty sure that I wanted to say no, but what I could have done was to say, you know, I'm not sure that I want to do that. I'm not sure that I have time to do that. I'm not sure it's the best thing for me to do. I need to think about it. So hitting that pause button to say, wait, I need to pause, I need to maybe consult my sponsor, I need to maybe pray on it, I need to have time to think of what is what is the best answer for me in this situation. What is the best way for me to, to respond here? So I could have paused, and that probably would have been okay if I had said, hey, I need to think about it, I'll call you back. And then I wouldn't have felt so much pressure to say yes right away, and, and I could have thought about it, and I and probably would have come to the understanding that, no, this was not something I wanted to do, and, and maybe then I could say no in a way that wasn't mean. So in that situation, I didn't say what I meant, and I sort of meant what I said, in that if I said yes, then I was going to do the thing. And the other thing that I got from my sponsor, and this is a piece of wisdom that I have carried with me, and that I really try to remember whenever I'm asked to do something that might take some significant effort on my part that might get in the way of make it so that I'm not able to do something else that I want or need to do. What he said was, if you never say no, your yeses are meaningless. If I always say yes, it doesn't mean anything. It just means that I'm, I'm, I'm getting along because nobody is always agreeable. 
nobody is always ready to do whatever somebody else asks them to. So I have to remember that, and I have to remember that there are times, as the reading said, when it's appropriate to say no. The next question that I ask myself, have I made promises or threats that I did not or had no real intention of carrying out? I did not carry them out or had no intention of carrying them out. And I had to think about this one because the one that comes up immediately is the sort of, if you don't stop drinking, I'll do something. And as I've expressed before, I was not ready to leave the relationship. And that was sort of the only or else that that I could think of. You need to not drink or else what? Uh, so I, I know there have been other times when I've done that, probably in dealing with my children when they were younger. I wanted them to stop some behavior. And I would say, if you don't stop doing that thing, uh, you won't get to do something else. And then I would feel guilty about not letting them do the other thing and I'd let them do it anyway. And so this again is a, a example of maybe at the time I thought I meant what I said, but since I didn't follow through, I really didn't mean it. And I know that there were times when, when I said said that or else if you don't if you don't do this or if you don't stop doing that then or else um, i'll do something or i won't do something and at the time i said it i really had no intention of carrying it out i just hoped that the person to whom i said it whether it was maybe my wife my child whoever i hoped that they would believe me even though i didn't mean what i say and i wasn't saying what i meant uh, what i meant was i really want you to stop this this is this is hurting me this is painful to me and i just want you to stop or I want you to do this thing because not doing it hurts me. But I couldn't say it that way. I wasn't able to say it that way. I wasn't able to express myself openly and honestly. And so I said it as a threat that I really had no intention of carrying out. And, of course, that eh, did not work well, generally. Usually, the person didn't do what I want them, wanted them to. And then when I didn't carry out the threat, that just sort of notched up their level of disbelief that I would ever follow through and made it less likely that they would they would do what I wanted next time I made a similar threat. So just didn't really work and I don't I don't think I do that anymore. I think I'm much better about using my I statements. So the way I learned I statements, the first way I learned I statements was actually at a treatment center because they were trying to tell us a little bit about communicating better with our loved one who was alcoholic or addict and acted in ways we didn't like. So the first way I learned it was uh, there was a formula. And I still remember that formula, and it's still a useful formula to use. I feel, name a feeling, when you describe an action because I am afraid, I am concerned, I am something. So if you look at the three parts, and let, so an example, I feel angry when you come home late without telling me that you're going to be late because I'm afraid that something horrible has happened to you. Okay. So the three parts of that statement are, I name a feeling and a feeling. And, and I listened to a podcast called um, recovery radio, online recovery radio, something like that by Kurt Swenson. I think if you look in iTunes, you'll find it under Kurt Swenson. 
And he often says, describes feeling that I feel blank. Okay, a feeling is a single word and it doesn't point back at somebody. So I feel sad. Wonderful. You make me sad. Not so good. Okay, why is that? Because that gives the other person a hook to come back at you. If you say, I feel sad, not much the other person can do about it because you're naming a feeling that's inside you. I feel angry. I feel angry when you buy booze on the way home every day because I'm concerned that we can't pay our bills because of how much money is being spent on booze. And there's another I statement. I feel angry. The second part, when you action should be a straightforward description of the action without emotion and without accusation. Because again, we don't want to give the person we're talking to a hook to retaliate, a hook to grab onto and and avoid the main discussion by being able to say, well, I don't do that, or I don't do it because that. You know, If I said, I feel angry when you buy booze on the way home so you can get drunk, then the other person says, well, I'm not buying it because I can get, so I can get drunk. I'm buying it because I like the flavor or whatever, okay, and avoiding the issue. And then the third part of the statement, because I, some other feeling typically, um, I am afraid that you will get in an accident. I am concerned that we won't have enough money to pay our bills is again pointing at me, and it's a lot harder for that to, again, rile up the other person. And, of course, if somebody's ready to pick a fight, they're going to pick a fight. But when I use that formula, when I keep the focus on me, how I'm feeling, and only talk about objective actions or facts that that the other person has done that are the reason that I'm feeling the way I feel, it opens up a window for a possibly reasoned conversation instead of closing the door and slamming it shut when I make an accusation statement. You always buy booze on the way home and you're spending all our money and we can't pay our bills. Okay, that one is accusatory doesn't have the word I in it anywhere. It's all full of you and closes the door on a conversation rather than opening it. Might make me feel momentarily better to say that, but not, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not productive. So I statements help to prevent me from making these promises or threats that I actually am not intending to carry out because they're, they're pointing back at me. This also comes into the concept of boundaries and, and I republished episode 103 last week about boundaries. So I don't think I'm going to go into a whole lot of detail on that at this point. Another question, which I think I've already addressed, when did I say yes when I wanted to say no? Uh, A question, when have I kept my feelings and wants to myself? And there are a number of reasons why I might not express these. Uh, I think for me, the underlying cause is that if I say what I want, I'm afraid that you're going to say no, and then I won't get it. So instead, I will try to manipulate 
you into getting what I want. Uh, I will, or I will, well, the first thing I wrote down here, what, when have I kept my feelings and wants to myself? And I wrote, because I expect my loved ones to just know what I wanted. Well, yeah. Uh, so last night, here we go. Last night, my wife and I went to the store to buy new bag of dog food and a new cushion for uh, our dog's crate because we're about to travel and it's good to have a, a, a new soft cushion for, for him to sleep on when we get to my parents' house. And we also got found some non-slip booties for him because they have polished wood floors and, and he's getting old and his, his muscle tone is not what it used to be. And sometimes his feet just slip out from under him and it's really, I mean, he yelps and it's it's just like so sad. So we want to see if we can do something about that. So we went to the store and so I bought a, I don't know, 60 pound bag of dog food and uh, a big cushion because he's a big dog and and the, found some booties. And then we're walking back out to the car and decided to do it in two trips because that way I wouldn't be trying to carry too much stuff and manage the dog and all that at the same time, even though there were two of us. So I got to the car and I opened the back of the car and put in the, the cushion and the booties that I had been carrying. And my wife put the dog inside the car and I went back to the store to get the bag of dog food and I left the back open because that way I wouldn't have to try to manipulate it while I was carrying the 60-pound bag of dog food at the same time. And I came back out, and my wife and the dog were in the car, and the and the back was shut. And I had sort of suspected that might happen, but I didn't say anything about, hey, I'm leaving the back open on purpose, please don't close it. Because I expected her to read my mind, to understand that I was leaving it open so that I could put the bag of dog food in there when I got out without having to open it again. And of course she didn't. She didn't read my mind. She's not me. She doesn't think the same way I do. What she saw, oh, Spencer left the back of the car open again. I guess I'll shut it for him. And I'm sorry, that that had a tone of voice to it that really, um, you know, maybe that was what was going through her head. Uh, maybe it was just like, oh, the back's open. I'll shut it. And and so I opened it and it wasn't a really a big deal, a little bit of inconvenience. And 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 I said, you know, I, I should have said to you, I'm leaving the back open because I want to put the dog food in the back without having to open it again. And and the, and I said, and I, I expected you to read my mind. And she said, well, I didn't. And I said, that's right. And we just both had a chuckle about it. And that's the, the level of communication that we have now. I didn't accuse her. I didn't yell at her. And she didn't respond defensively. We just were able to sort of smile and, and go on. That's something that just took me a long time to learn that, you know, my loved ones can't read my mind. They don't know what I want all the time. And if I really want something, I have to say it. I might do it because I'm afraid you disagree with me. And, and again, I, I avoid conflict. I don't want you to disagree with me. So I might not say, we were going out and I would like to go to a particular restaurant. And I'm, again, I'm hoping that you're going to read my mind and say, let's go to that restaurant. And you say, I'd like to go to this other restaurant. And I don't say, well, I really wanted to go to the first place because you know I don't want to like cause a disagreement. And maybe if I said that, you'd say, oh, sure, that's fine. No problem. Uh, and maybe you wouldn't, but that would be okay. I've learned that when I can when I can state my preferences openly, when I can state them without uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't think of the word here. But you know, if I just say, "Hey, I want this," and then you say, "Well, I want this other thing," well, then we can talk about it, or I can say, "Yeah, that other thing's fine," or maybe you say, "Oh, the thing you want is fine." But this fear of having a disagreement often has kept me in the past from from getting what I actually wanted, even though I might have. Oh well. Another reason that I've found when I don't open my mouth and say what I want is when I have felt that 
making you happy is more important than getting what I want. So I'm just going to go along with you. I'm going to grit my teeth and and do the thing I don't want to do because it's important that you be happy. It's more important that you be happy than I be happy. I don't know how many times I've done this in the past. A lot. And again, what I don't know, see, I'm trying to read your mind. And I think that not doing the thing I want to do is going to make you happier than by, you know, by doing the thing you want to do. But maybe not. Like I said, maybe, maybe you don't really have a preference. But I think I know what you want. And how arrogant is that, huh? And how codependent is that? Uh, sometimes, yeah, uh, sometimes it's important to, to satisfy another person more important to satisfy another person than it is to satisfy yourself. And a really trivial example that comes to my mind is let's say, let's say it's my wife's birthday. I say, where do you want to go for dinner? And she says, I want to go to this restaurant because that's one of the things we do on our birthdays is we go out and I'm really, you know, not so excited about that restaurant, but it's her birthday and it's her choice. So we go, Um, you know, what kind of cake do you want? I want this kind of cake. Oh, I really like that other kind of cake. But no, it's your birthday, so we'll get your cake. So sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it's the right thing to do for me. But a lot of the time, if I'm just going along because I don't want to upset you because it's, I think it's more important for you to get what you want than it is for me to get what I want, then I need to think about it and, and I need to maybe speak up. A little further down in the communication chapter in the book How Al Anon Works, States, it is worth noting, however, that if we are dealing with someone who is drunk or violent, this kind of honesty may be ill-advised. Real communication requires at least some participation by both parties, and if one of those parties is not in his or her right mind, the effort is likely to be wasted. It may even be dangerous. I just want to lift that up, uh, that there are times when, when saying what we mean may not be appropriate because... As it says, it may be, may be wasted or it may, in fact, be dangerous to us. So please keep that in mind. The first part of the, the first couple of paragraphs of the chapter really talk about when we, when we keep quiet, when we should, maybe not, when we should speak up. And then it talks about those of us or that part of us that will say whatever's on our minds, whether it's appropriate or not. And I got that too, to some extent. I do, I do. And in particular, here's this question, when do I give unsolicited advice or criticism? So I've talked about how I was raised to be a fixer, how I always have felt in the past that that I know what's right for you. I still feel I know what's right for you, but at least I know to keep my mouth shut now. Uh, And when I know what's right for you, and and particularly when you come to me with a problem, uh, my first inclination is always to try to help you fix it. How do I do that? Well, I'm going to give you advice. I'm going to say, you need to do this or that or the other thing. And I remember so many times my wife would come to me with something that was bothering her, and I would immediately go into this fix-it mode, and she would say, you know, I don't want you to fix it. I just want to talk about it. And I was like, what? I don't understand. What do you mean you don't want to fix it? Oh, now did you hear what I said there? What do you mean you don't want to fix it? What she said was, I don't need you to fix it. And what I said was, what do you mean you don't want to fix it? Okay, that's a lack of my boundary. That's me injecting myself into her life. And that is not a formula for harmony all the time. 
So being in this program, being told that in Al-Anon we don't give advice, we only share our own experience, and only when it's welcomed, that's the second part of we only share our own experience, has really helped me with this not jumping in to fix right away. Um, last weekend, last weekend, and the, one of the reasons I, I reposted episode 103 is I was spent the weekend in a church with a couple of dozen high school age youth in a training that I've gone to a couple times before. It's how to be an effective chaplain, where a chaplain is somebody to whom you can go and talk about something that's bothering you in your life, or maybe, you know, something you're happy about that you just want to, you just want to talk about it. The chaplain is not there to be a friend. The chaplain is not there to be a therapist. The chaplain is not there to be a fixer. Um, And part of the training is in listening. Part of it is about ways of guiding a conversation so that um, the person might find some, some resolution of their own. Sounds very much like being a sponsor. In fact, in my experience, it is very much like being a sponsor without the, tw- without the 12 steps, of course. And I saw over and over again in the young people who were in this training, and for them it was the first time, of course, that when we would do some role-playing, some scenarios, so, so often they would very quickly go to the, well, have you tried this? Maybe you could do that kind of suggestions advice in other words it's a natural a natural human inclination and and learning to only give advice when asked has been a really important part of my recovery i get along with people a lot better now and the second half of that is of course uh, unsolicited criticism wow you really screwed that up um, no not so good never almost never received gracefully Almost never. If somebody says, well, you know, how do you think I did there? That's a different matter. And now I can say what I mean and not be mean when I say it. Okay. I keep coming back to that because there are ways of giving criticism that are constructive and there are ways of getting criticism that are just mean. You really screwed that up. Okay. That, that doesn't help. If the person probably knows they really screwed it up. Okay. You're not telling them something they don't know and it's not helpful. Another question, when do I repeatedly say something and why? So there's a simple word for that. It's called nagging. One of the things, again, a tool that I learned fairly early in my program was if if I noticed something, there was something that my loved one was doing that bothered me or something that I wanted her to do that I was allowed to to ask once. I was allowed to say it once. And when I say aloud, this is like what my sponsor told me, right? Say it once and then don't repeat it. Because when you repeat it, it's nagging. It's not helpful. So here's a here's a situation. So, you know, I have two kids and I knew that I knew that they had been affected by this disease of alcoholism because their mother's an alcoholic. And I really wanted them to get to recovery. I really wanted them to, to, to find it. But because of this say it once thing, whenever, say my daughter would say something about me, you know, I don't understand why mama does the things she does. Um, I would say, well, you know, a lot of it's tied up in, in her alcoholism. And we have a program that can help you to understand that and to, and to deal with it. And she would say no. And then I have to shut up. Because saying it again is not going to make is not going to change her mind, you know. Especially now that she's an adult. 
But if she brings it up again, then I feel, then I can say it. I can say it again. I can say, you know, you, why don't you give Alan on a try? Nope. Okay. Shut up, Spencer. Uh, and it reminds me of, of something I have also heard in the rooms. It uh, reminds me to, to, to say it once, which is be brief, be honest, be gone. So say what I mean. Don't like rehash it in the saying. Uh, don't say it five different ways because maybe they'll understand it when, when you get to the fifth way of saying it. You know, be brief. Say it once. Be honest. Say what you mean. And then be gone. Don't, don't, don't nag. Don't reiterate. You know, so say what I mean. Mean what I say. Don't be mean when I say it. Be brief. Be honest. Be gone. And put those two together. And that's, that's a really good formula for getting along better with other people. And when do I say things that I don't really mean? I think I really talked about this. Except that one that came to my attention some time ago, and I don't remember exactly what brought it to my attention, is the things that I say by rote, that is just part of a social exchange. You know, Hi, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. Okay, great. See ya. Neither of us probably really means it. Neither of us really wants to know how the other person is. Neither of us is probably fine, except in the effed up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional sense at least for me, can't speak for other people. But we say it because it's a formula. I don't mean what I say in that case. And I don't really say what I mean either. And the one that the one that I really had to focus on is saying thanks. So for example, I ride the bus to work frequently. A lot of people as they're getting off the bus say thanks. And I'm like, okay, I can say thanks. And I thought, well, do I really mean thank you? If I don't really mean it, I shouldn't say it. Okay. If I want to say it, then I need to mean it. And and I've really tried to to bring that particular concept into my life wholeheartedly. That when I say thank you, when I say thank you, I really mean it. I, I'm, I am feeling gratitude for whatever service, small or large, the other person might have done for me. And I can still say thanks when I get off the bus. But when I do that, I always, in my head put myself in, in, as we say, an attitude of gratitude. I always really feel for that moment, thankful that the, you know, the bus driver has delivered me to where I I'm trying to go. It's a very simple thing. It doesn't take very long. It doesn't take a lot of effort and it makes a big difference in the way I feel. Um, It might make a difference in, in the way that the driver hears what I say. Also, I know it makes a difference in the way I feel and that's important to me. That brings us to the the nonverbal part of communication, tone of voice, facial expression, body language. If I am in a in a disagreement with somebody and I need to to take some pause to maybe regain my emotional equilibrium to think about what I really believe and understand and want, I can say I need to take some time. I need to think about this. And if I say it in that tone of voice, it's sort of non-confrontational, non-accusatory, and is more likely to leave us at least in a neutral position, if not a positive emotional position, as I as I disengage from the conversation. If, on the other hand, I shout it out, I need to get away from this. I need to stop this conversation right now. That's not going to leave either of us in a, a positive state, you know? So tone of voice, facial expression, body language. Um, Again, at the chaplaincy training, and I think I might have talked about this before, but it's a wonderful demonstration of of body language 
and how it can really change um, the feeling of of a conversation, really change the level of engagement. And the scenario is one person's coming to the chaplain with a problem, and in the first the first time through, the chaplain's kind of sitting back in their chair, and uh, I think she had some cookies or something. She's kind of eating. She's looking around the room. She's got her arms crossed and and really like obviously not paying a lot of attention to the to the person who's talking and and the person who's talking is kind of like hesitant and not necessarily really opening up not feeling better about what's going on uh, and then in the second time through the chaplain sits forward makes eye contact sort of focuses on the other person and and you can see the communication deepen you can see the engagement that's happening. And the first time I saw that, it was just so obvious. And I thought, wow, um, that really makes a difference. I, even though maybe I'm not saying anything, just by changing the way I sit, by changing where I look. And, and I'm one of these people, I don't want to look at you when I'm talking to you. So this is this is a practice for me that I have to, I have to work on. Makes a difference. I really believe it makes a difference. And this is something that I have brought into practice when I'm working with a sponsee, for example, that, that when we're talking, I'm with them. I'm not sitting back. I don't have my arms crossed. I'm not looking at the traffic. If we're maybe sitting in a coffee shop, I'm not looking out the window. You know, I'm focusing. And not only does, I believe, that give the person who's talking a sense that they're being heard, it also actually sharpens my focus and makes me a better listener. And and this goes along with this notion of acting our way into right thinking as opposed to trying to think our way into right acting, that very often doing the action changes my attitude um, and, and brings me more into the place that I want to be. I want to talk about some tools and principles of the program that I've used at least to help me say what I mean. And the first one, and I talk about this a lot, partly because this was something that I so did not want to do when I came to the program, and that is the inventory. I may not know what I actually want or need or believe until I take that that look at myself, until I do that inventory of my myself, my psyche, my soul, my my wants and needs and likes and dislikes and assets and, and debits and defects. So doing that inventory helps me to know what I want helps me to understand that I don't actually like chocolate ice cream. Well, that's not true, but it's an example. Okay. And I might have said, oh yeah, I'll have chocolate, no problem, because because you know I want the other person to be right. And I don't really realize that I don't like it until I, I take that closer look. Another person, and and in this program it's often a sponsor, but it can just be another program friend or or just a friend who really understands us. Getting another perspective on a situation can help me to really understand what I want. Um, this was part of the skill that we were learning in the chaplaincy training was guiding a person to their own understanding and maybe their own finding finding a solution or at least a way forward, uh, understanding what they want so that then they can express that and they can do it. Um, and so when I talk to my sponsor or when I talk to another program person about um, a problem, a situation, a question, 
sometimes just the, the talking about it, not even having any feedback can help me clarify in my own mind what I want. In fact, I was talking about that idea in a meeting at work yesterday. There's this uh, technique called rubber duck problem solving. And the, the story goes something like this. Worker comes to his boss with a problem and says, boss, I don't, I don't know how to deal with this. And the boss says, well, go tell it to the duck. And the worker's like, what? And there's a duck over there. Go tell it to the duck, you know, the toy duck. And so the worker goes over there and he looks at the duck and, and his boss says, don't pray to the duck, tell it to the duck out loud. So the worker starts describing the problem to the duck. And as he's describing the problem, the solution comes to him. And, and I have found this to be true. Very often my duck is another person, but because I feel less awkward talking out loud to a person than to a rubber duck. Um, but I mentioned this to, to one of the, some of the people at work yesterday and one of them said, oh, man, I'm going to get some rubber ducks and spread them around the office. I'm like, oh, no, what did I just do? But here we go. So sometimes just the process of talking about it. But if not, getting somebody else's perspective can help me to understand, to clarify my understanding of a situation of, and, and to uh, make it easier to say what I mean and to mean what I say. Sometimes I need prayer and meditation. I need that quiet time. I need to take that pause and just sit with myself and my higher power to understand what I want, what I need, so that then I can say it. And also to give me the courage, as the reading said, sometimes I need to pray for the courage to say what I mean and to mean what I say. Tools and principles that can help me mean what I say. What, what are these? So I talked about sort of the attitude of gratitude, that just bringing a feeling of gratitude into my mind in the instant before I say thank you. I believe changes the way I say thank you, and it certainly, as I said, changes the way that I leave that you know, it gives me a little positive charge. Um, I can change my attitude. I can change my angle of approach to a situation. I can change my perspective. And that, that can help me to be in a place where I mean what I say. Forming that intention before I open my mouth. And again, the, the thank you one is, I think, foremost in my mind. But really bringing into, into the forefront of my mind what I want, what I mean, makes it more likely that I'll actually mean what I say and say what I mean. Um, again, the pause button. If I'm going to form an intention, if I'm going to change my attitude, I usually have to have time to do it in. If I'm just reacting, I'm much more likely to be mean when I say it and not say what I mean and not mean what I say. So again, use that pause button. Take a moment. Take a breath or two. It's not going to kill you. If in that breath or two the other person comes back at you, it gives you a little bit more time to think. Something that I learned from a friend in the program is considering my motives. So when I'm thinking about saying something, doing something, and I'm really not sure if it's the right thing, I'm really not sure if it's what I mean, I'm really not sure if it's what I should say, I'm really not sure if it's going to be mean when I say it, is to think about what my intention is. Do I have an expectation of something that is going to happen when I say this? Do I have an expectation that I'm going to get something when I say this? Do I have an expectation that I'm trying to, to change what is my motive? Am I trying to change another person or am I trying to honestly express myself? Am I trying to do something that comes from my, my true intention, from my true self? Uh, so what's my motive? Asking myself that question can help me to be sure that I mean what I say. A sponsor can be really helpful with that too. I don't always understand what my motive is. And how can I not be mean when I say it? And the first couple of bullet points I have here are about these acronyms that we have these saying. First is HALT, H-A-L-T. If I am hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, I am much more likely to 
say things in a mean tone of voice, to use words that are not helpful. So consider that. If I'm if I'm really mad and I'm about to say something, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should take a pause, take some time for prayer and meditation to let loose of that anger, to let go of that anger, to hand it over to my higher power so that I can say what I mean and mean what I say and not be mean when I say it. A tool that I first found in the description of step 10 in the book Paths to Recovery is THINK, another acronym. I ask myself, is what I'm about to say thoughtful? Is it honest? Is it intelligent? Is it necessary? And is it kind? If if I can't say yes, again, particularly when I'm going to about to come out with, with a criticism or something negative, I really need to ask myself those questions before I say it. And And if I decide I do need to say it, then at least I'm saying it in a thoughtful, honest, intelligent, and kind way. Prayer and meditation helps me to take the time to consider H-A-L-T and T-H-I-N-K. It helps to smooth my emotions before I open my mouth. Uh, Or just the pause button, just a couple of deep breaths, count to ten. You know, the old count to ten thing can be really helpful. And finally, consider whether you're picking up the rope. From this reading, uh, I believe it's on page 30 in how Elanon works about it takes two to engage in a tug of war. And if you drop the rope, you don't have to engage. Or if you don't pick up the rope, you don't have to engage. You don't have to get into that fight one more time if you just don't pick it up. And that's, that's a really important one too. I hope that, that from this maybe you have found some new ways to say what you mean, to mean what you say, and to not be mean when you say it. I think running out of time this morning, I'm trying to record this before work. I'm going to jump right forward to uh, your emails that that you sent. It's been a couple of weeks and and we have several. I want to thank everybody who has written. I want to say thank you to Tony from Scotland, who's offered to be a guest host on the show. I haven't gotten back to you yet, but I will. I think it'd be awesome. Kelly writes, Dear Spencer, I was listening to your podcast in Venice today and in the French countryside over the weekend. It's incredible being able to access recovery when I can't get to meetings. Thanks so much. I've been listening for 18 months now. You might remember I first started listening when I had a concussion and couldn't do much. The miracles really have been beyond my wildest imagination. Even being able to travel on my own and do things like go to restaurants alone, which first started to happen in my local hometown, breaking the isolation in my early recovery. Now I'm able to dine out on my own in international places like Venice and Paris, and I'm able to chat to strangers. It's all thanks to Elanon. Thank you so much for your podcast. They save me when I can't get to my regular meetings and add to my recovery. Lots of love in Elanon, Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. And I do remember your your email about being glad to have an ability to to listen to some recovery when, when you were suffering from your concussion. And I'm glad that you've really, sounds like you've really recovered and that's awesome. And just your example of how the gifts of this program go so far beyond learning to survive in an alcoholic situation. Um, really, really great examples. Thank you. Roberta wrote, I'm so grateful to you for doing this service. You bring Alan on to me on a deeper level than I get in a one hour meeting. Your show has been like peeling an onion in my recovery. 
When I was 18 years old in 1977, a therapist told me to, quote, move far away from my mother and I would be better. He said, that's all I have to do. Then I married an alcoholic, divorced, married another man with his ism, produced kids with alcoholism and addiction, spent a lifetime in pursuit of every kind of recovery. Not until I walked into the rooms in 2011 have I gotten better. Because of Al-Anon, I was able to be at my mother's side when she passed away, telling her she was a good mother and I love her. My alcoholic sister, not so. Who knew all that insanity was just a simple case of the family disease of alcoholism? Because you do this podcast, it keeps me in check and supports me in understanding my meetings, the literature, and my step work, and what my sponsor is talking about. And I have a really great playlist of recovery music. Gratefully, yours, Roberta. And thanks, Roberta. And thank you for your, your support of the show as well. Again, a wonderful example of how this program helps us in so many ways in our life. And I, although I haven't, I don't have music this, this episode, uh, had limited time over the weekend to work on it. And that always takes me uh, a while to, to pick music. And so they will be back. I just don't have it this week. Cece left a comment on the boundaries episode number 103. And I think she actually left this comment before I decided to repeat it last week. And then I saw that she had left a comment. I was like, well, how about that? Huh? Synchronicity here. Cece says, Thank you so much for this episode about boundaries and for all of your episodes. I went back to episode one and started listening to each one. I'm currently dealing with a very difficult situation, so I went looking for one that would help me and I found this one. I'm new to Al-Anon, having attended only three meetings. I'm a single working mother, and it is difficult to make it to meetings every week due to schedules. I do not have a sponsor yet, nor do I really know anyone very well, making it hard for me to call someone, so your pods have been a virtual lifeline to me. I have a very hard time setting and enforcing personal boundaries and now find myself in a situation with my loved one that makes it absolutely imperative for my own sanity and serenity. I haven't even been able to find the courage or the words to have the conversation regarding boundaries with him yet for fear of how he will react. Yes, I know, classic codependency. In this episode, I totally felt like your conversation with Julia could have been me talking. I'm trying to wait at least six months before making any major decisions regarding my relationship with my boyfriend. I don't know that I will be able to wait that long, as things have become very strained after a major falling out due to me trying to practice detachment, probably very poorly, and maybe not so lovingly, and have doubted my decision regarding that situation ever since. Of course, he has a hand in reinforcing that doubt in true alcoholic manipulative form. It is so hard to separate the person from the disease. I'm really struggling with that. Anyway, I feel as though I'm rambling on and really just wanted to say thank you for all that you do. I'm looking forward to working my way through all of the episodes. Cece. And wow, so much and so early as regards, you know, finding a sponsor. And I know I've said this before, listen in a meeting and identify one person who maybe it feels like they're telling your story. Maybe they just say something that really touches you, that resonates with you and walk up to that person after the meeting and say, Hey, I really liked, or I really felt what you had to say. And I wonder if I could call you. It's it's that simple. It's also that hard. Um, and then pick up the phone and call them because now you have permission, you know. And that should make it a little easier to pick up the phone and call them. And yeah, you don't know them, but it's okay because, in my experience in this program, we we all know each other in a very fundamental way, even though we don't know each other in in our superficial ways. So, I, I really encourage you to to try that. Boundaries are hard. Um, the people that we're setting the boundaries on don't like them. Um, we do it for ourselves. And yeah, 
I think we said it all in that episode. I don't need to say more. Thanks, Cece. Amy has a topic suggestion. She writes, first, I wanted to reach out to say thanks for being here. I'm just shy of a year in Al-Anon and have small children. With a limited number of meetings that offer babysitting and fit my work schedule, your show has helped me to keep Al-Anon in my life on the regular. I read the literature daily, but there's something invaluable in hearing recovery messages of experience, strength, and hope through someone's actual voice, even if it can't be in person. And you offer resources I may never have found otherwise. I also wanted to ask if you would consider doing an episode on anger. I haven't found one on your show yet. This is something I struggle with daily, by the hour some days, living in a home of addiction that is secretive, high-functioning, and covered in lies both spoken and unspoken, and a home with two little children, both younger than five, who would test the patience and emotional stability of even the most sober or ism-free homes. I find my anger unmanageable and often likely misdirected, which is to say that I feel my children bear the brunt of it. It would be great to hear some experience, strength, or hope that may help me to navigate how to be the mom, wife, and woman I'm working to be. Thank you, Amy. I don't remember if I've done one on anger either. I think not, which is kind of interesting considering that that was one of the primary characteristics that I brought into this program was my anger. I'm there with you, Amy. I had a lot of unexpressed anger that exploded out over the wrong people, including my children. What really helped me was was coming to meetings, reading the literature, and working the program. And the anger kind of evaporated. It was amazing. And it's not that my situation necessarily got better either. It wasn't that my kids got less annoying. It wasn't that my wife stopped drinking. She did for a while, but then she was drinking again. And and I didn't have to be angry anymore, and it was amazing. So I encourage you to keep working the program. And I'll see if I can find... It'd be really awesome to have some somebody who wants to guest host on anger. If you're listening and... You'd like to talk about anger with me on an episode? Let me know. Thanks, Amy. Sarah has a question. I enjoyed listening to the podcast. I'm from Canada. I use these to get some calmness before sleep. I have a question for you, Spencer. You often talk of your relationship with your spouse while you started the process, yet she was still drinking. I'm at the stage where I've had to make a decision to protect myself emotionally. I'm finding it difficult to know what to do if my husband refuses to quit drinking. He's not willing to admit he's an alcoholic, even though my two daughters, 20 and 23, and myself have said we cannot have a relationship with him while he's drinking. He has stated, again, that he'll be more aware of the amount or his actions. Anyway, I'm rambling. He's asked me to go to therapy with him. I'm struggling because I don't want to go unless he says he'll stop. Is this fair of me? We've been married for 23 years, together for over 30. We started dating when I was 13. He's always self-medicated. I've spent our entire relationship, in my opinion, trying to tweak things so that he feels less stressed than he needs to drink less or not be angry. Any thoughts? I realize I'm all over the place. Thanks for your time, Sarah. I guess I want to refer back to the, the question I asked earlier, which I didn't really have a good answer to about making promises or threats without really meaning them. Um, and it's not really the same as your question here about, I'm struggling because I don't want to go unless he says he'll stop. And the perspective I have there is that Here's my opinion coming in, okay? He's not necessarily going to say he'll go to therapy to, in order to stop drinking. Um, it sounds like he's not ready to, to stop drinking. He hasn't found enough pain from it yet. But I think if you flip it around and look at the idea that going to therapy may help him to understand the effect his drinking is having more clearly, and perhaps bring him to that point where he wants to stop. Because it doesn't sound like he wants to stop yet. And unfortunately, 
The reality is most alcoholics don't stop until they, they have some reason to want to stop. But I wouldn't try to couple, make it a precondition of going that he's going to stop. Look at it as an opportunity to potentially improve your relationship, potentially improve your emotional stability. And also, you know, keep coming to Al-Anon. Because that, like I say, that really helped me even even while she was drinking. If you haven't listened to the episode titled Stay or Go, I think it's number 79, but I could be wrong. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I'll go back go back and I would suggest going back and listening to that where several of us share our own experiences about staying or not staying in an alcoholic relationship. And Heather, Heather writes, she wants to hear from you. She has a question and she wants to hear your experience. She says, hello, thank you for the recovery show. It has brought me solace and guidance and helped me to feel part of a larger group of humans instead of feeling desperate and alone. I have an idea for a topic that I haven't heard. Many Al-Anon meetings and shows talk about people currently in relationships with alcoholics. My relationship ended and it was not my choice. I am devastated. But just because my relationship has ended does not mean I don't belong in Al-Anon still. I would also like to hear more from people who have chosen to leave their alcoholics and how they have endured the loss. I know you did a show about loss, but if you could talk more specifically about the end of a relationship with an alcoholic and the overwhelming feelings that it is all my fault. Thanks, Heather. So if if you have been there, if you have ended your relationship with an alcoholic, or if your alcoholic has ended a relationship with you and you want to talk about it, please share your experience, your strength, your hope. You can send us an email. You can send email to feedback at com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 734-707-8795. You get about three minutes. Uh, you can call back if you if you want to talk for longer than three minutes. You can leave a, a shorter voicemail from the uh, voicemail button on our website, or we can set up a time to have a longer conversation about your experience. And again, send email to feedback at com if you'd like to do that. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses, which run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Michelle, Megan, Tony, Roberta, Carolyn, Leslie, Lonnie, and Hannah did. And, and thank you so much, all of you, for your support. I know it's been a couple of weeks, and, and a whole bunch of contributions came in in those, those couple of weeks, um, but I really appreciate it. It really keeps us going. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.